In a world where more and more people are believing that the Emperor is in fact wearing new clothes, we discuss topics new and old with a loose format that we try to keep to. However, we may go off on a tangent and occasionally we may digress. Welcome to Digressing Tangents. So, welcome to Digressing Tangents, episode 6. And on today's show, we have Dean Rayner from the Up Is Down podcast. How are you, Dean? I'm doing pretty well, man. Pretty well. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I appreciate it. No, I, I think it's got to be a year and a half, maybe two years since we said we would probably try and get together and have a chat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah um, I think now I'm trying to re- remember now what it was that sparked me a to start a podcast now it could have been yourself saying you know everyone needs to start talking about it or you know or just get out the way basically but we there were some really good episodes you had regarding like the left and right paths that people can take and yeah. also um just just generally like religion in, in, in as a whole yeah yeah, yeah, I've done a little bit of diving into that sort of stuff, and I mean, I I keep a healthy disposition of ultimate skeptic of uh, skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just question all things, you know, personally, and I try to remain in a somewhat of a middle ground because, you know, I can see logic on all sides of of any argument. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that I can identify with as far as the people that are. I guess I'd, what I call them is kind of in the village, you know, like the right yeah. hand path kind of in the village, the big group collective, especially when it comes to what I see as a really clear, deliberate attempt to dismantle society and dismantle the systems that we've been living under for time immemorial, it seems. And I'm all on board with that. I would love to facilitate a collapse of these systems that are arbitrary at best and dinosaurs at worst. And then at the same time, I can see the other side of it that, you know, the ultimate way for me is, is as an individual carving my own individual path um, alone through the wilderness of this world, of this realm. So I can identify with the groups and I can also identify with the single-minded, you know, caveman warrior type. I don't really subscribe to one or the other as a particular path or a philosophy I try to keep my fingers in all the pies, uh, so I get a little bit of I get a little bit of everything, you know. Yeah, no, I I I, I can understand that because I, I'm I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I can always see both sides to a an argument. You know, if I'm ever stuck between two people that are saying, you know, and I'm being asked to say, you know, who's right, who's wrong, I can normally see merits in both arguments. Um, and I was, I say, blessing or a curse. It's a blessing in one way that, especially in my line of work and previous lines of work, I'm quite capable of working with people that I don't like. <laughs> because yeah. I know at the end of the day, I'm going to go home and I'm not going to phone them up and say, do you want to come out for a pint of beer, you know? Yeah. So I can be very professional and a little bit cold like that. I could, very mercenary, in fact, if, if, if you want to put a, a word on it. I, I can work with people. Well, yeah, you know, the, what, what, what I call that is just detachment. It seems like you yeah. have a pretty, like a, a practical detachment to 
your function within that little system and then you know your own your own individuality and possibly you know very likely recognizing the individuality and the other people that are also perfunctory within that system doesn't mean you got to be best friends no 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 no, absolutely i mean um i'm currently living in scotland and nearly everyone is football crazy do you mean and i'm not uh, soccer for the american audience but i've got no interest in in sports ball whatsoever you know so, but when you come home to work in the morning and the first cup of coffee, it's all, oh, did you watch the game? Did you do this? Did you do, you know, you, and you've kind of got to just nod your head and um and ah, and then say, oh, why don't you get on now? <laughs> and leave yeah. them, like you say, leave them in that, uh, you know, and, and especially nowadays with the, the whole, you know, the monkey pox thing and God knows what else is going on. Everyone's, you know, a buzz with it. And you're thinking, you know, the, the saddest thing in the last two years is no one's learned from it. Or, or very few people seem to have learned from it. That's yeah. that's a bit of a kick in the nuts. You think people would have wised up to this by now, but hey ho, is that yeah, the same? I mean, go knock at the woods. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've I've got my own thoughts about why that might be and what's you know what's going on that keeps people from thinking critically about things or just stopping and questioning. And there's a you know there's a handful of people in my little sphere that. Uh, you know, they were on board with everything from the problem with the air to the injections and and uh, all of the, you know, it, it, the it, administrative efforts to curb the so-called pandemic. And they were all on board. And then they actually took just a hot second to start reading the pamphlets and start looking at other information. And they've it, their lives have been completely changed. So and I don't really consider that hope. I mean, the numbers of those people that are turning tide and changing their mind about things are still so infinitesimally small against the machine of, you know, what I think is just a massive, massive mind control operation that's the world over, you know, and I don't think that we have much of a, a chance to, to slow that down, especially to even try to stop it. The only real thing that I think we can do is is just try to build our own little arcs and our own little rafts to try to navigate the rising floodwaters. Yeah. Do, do you think, do you think it is that the ability to critically think and see through some of this BS, do you think that is genetic and, or do you think it's like nature versus uh, a nature versus nurture kind of effect where you've acclimated to understanding it. Therefore, once you start seeing it, you can't stop seeing it. Do you think it's self-taught or do you think there's an innate difference between, I'm, I'm going to say these two different kinds of people because all the, for want of a better word, conspiracy theorists I know are always very, or generally speaking, very rational and they think, you know, they actually, you know, before they speak or they'll speak about something and then, if information comes along that changes their thought process or their, or the narrative, they can take that on board, reassess and then carry on where the other side, once they've been told something, they hold on to it and they will not let it go despite more information coming to them. You know, I mean, recently, recently I've had a lot of conversations that go something along the lines of this. Where did you get that? stupid conspiracy nonsense from and my response is from the government website <laughs> do you mean yeah. it's there 
it's just, if you go to the government website, the death numbers, the reactions, you know, the, the, the side effects, it's there, you know, and they go, oh, well, I don't believe that. And then, then that's it. End of conversation. You're like, well, you've just called me a conspiracy theorist. I've come back and told you the, the government are telling you this, the same government that told you to do everything that you've done. And now you don't want to believe them because it basically makes you feel stupid. You know? Well, I think it's worse than that, honestly. I mean, there's people in my own family, my, my, my mother and some people in my family who, you know, when I, when I, you know, I, I've, I, I tried very hard to not bring it up, but I can't help it. You know, it just comes up when my mother was visiting last summer, she was talking, you know, we don't talk about the problem with the air and she got the, the jab and whatever she only got the jab like so many other older people who got the jab because they were told they had to or they would never see their grandkids again you know or they would never be able to do whatever and so she got you know the budget jab the johnson and johnson and for what it's worth i'm just going to throw this out there i don't think that all of the vaccines are real i think that the vast vast majority of the injections are placebo yeah. and uh, and i think that you know people in my family have been lucky enough to have received those fake empty placebos. But um, she was going on about, well, I was going on about the problem with the air and the ridiculous mind control and how I recognize it as such. And my mother is so opposite of me, you know, I mean, she's a quaint little pear-shaped woman in her seventies who smokes, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day, does not drink water, drinks only coffee, doesn't work out. She is not healthy, but you know, she's still kicking along and strong as an ox. And she's going, I'm going on about this stuff and I have to like really curb it. And she's saying how, you know, she just, she likes Dr. Fauci because he's handsome. And, and that's a big, you know, that's a big sway with a lot of older women, I know for sure. But then when I actually play her and I show her the video and the audio clips of all the contradictions from Mr. Fauci himself, you know, like she, it, it just, she doesn't, she won't see it like she'll see it and she'll go huh and she thinks about it for a half a second and then it just gets dropped you know and i think the problem of that like what like to me what that means is that there's so there are so many people most people i would say 99 percent of the people out there when confronted with a with a stark contradiction in the things that they believe the very idea that it makes them question that thing that they believe ultimately leads to a whole series of instantaneous sub questions, which all lead back to a great larger question, a massive mega question subconsciously that what is really going on and to question even the little things like the contradictions of the world health organization inevitably leads to the bigger question of what is it that we're sitting on? What's really happening in the world? Who am I? Where do I fit in? And these are all very existential questions that are massive and heavy and foreboding and ultimately not pleasant to think about because there's really no answer and no way for anyone to know. And so in the face of these larger questions, the question of one's own worldview, people are much more comfortable to just not think about it because it's a fundamentally unanswerable question. And so I can also see the rationale in that, you know, like I can, I can forgive the people very easily who have no interest in questioning the narrative or questioning what it is that we're living on 
in this so-called fake universe or even the shape of the cosmos themselves, their, their place in it. I can totally understand and forgive their inability and lack of desire to wonder about those things because it ultimately begs the bigger question, which is what the hell is really going on? And it's a terrifying thing to behold. And uh, I don't hate people for thinking that or for not wanting to think that at all. I, I wish that I could do that so many times, so many ways. I wish that I was a so-called normie person who simply had no desire to know more, but that's not the case. It turns out that's my lot in my, in my life, in my whole life. I've always been wanting to know more and why, why do things work the way they work and how do things fit together? And ultimately, you know, there's the ego that comes into places, you know, where do I fit into this larger equation? Most people don't think about that kind of stuff. They can't because it questions their worldview and their worldview at that point is threatened to collapse. And that means they'd have to rebuild everything on a spiritual level, on a psychological level, on an emotional level. All the things that they've been attached to uh, would just be incinerated like a fart in the wind if they start to question even the little things. Yeah, that's very true. When there's that famous quote, uh, better to have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Yeah. And I think that's that's a, a good cornerstone if you say to say that to some people. It's like the uh, the statement, the science is settled, which is the most unscientific statement ever. And I've heard that multiple times over the last last year, you know, when oh no, I, I believe the science it's settled. So yeah, but there's there's a thousand, hundreds of thousands of examples of science that was settled that was then proven not to be settled. And when Absolutely. you point that, yeah, and you point that out to people, and they go, "Oh well, this time, oh yeah, but that was back then. We're we're cleverer now, so we don't make as many mistakes. Therefore, you know, every time we settle the science, it's more bedrock than than sand." And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, no, it's not." <laughs> yeah, and people get really frustrated, you know, when they're confronted, even even casually and gently, with the reality of the constant perpetual contradiction of that way of thinking. You know, when you just say, okay, well, the, you know, the science is settled. Okay, I can respect that. But the settled science has subsequently changed five, six, seven times since it was first, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when it comes to the problem with the air. So if the science is settled, how can you still go along with the settling of the science in perpetuity into the future if the <laughs> science is settled? And when you ask that question, people just get, they get frustrated. They get frustrated because they can't wrap their brains around the fact that they're, that they are actively engaged in a perpetual contradiction and in a double think um, cognitive dissonance. And because yeah. everyone has this pride level where there's like, Oh, that, I, I wouldn't fall for that. I couldn't fall for that, you know, and, and I couldn't be blindly led along. But when you point out that, you know, they are, and potentially you are as well, it's just it's it's a non-starter so i just don't even bring it up anymore really like i'm very very cautious these days even in my new location where i live in this tiny town i never bring it up i never bring up my podcast to anybody i just don't talk about it anymore because there's really no point you know there's people have made up their minds and if they haven't made up their minds that's great but i'm not going to push them one way or another i used to be really gung-ho about it i used to be really really driven to you know get some information out there and turn people on to the contradictions and the mind control and i still do with the podcast occasionally but my my 
my desire to connect with other people and, you know, quote unquote, find the others has been reduced, you know, and maybe that's just the demoralization that comes along with being, you know, um, part of a massive target of a mind control campaign. Yeah, I, I, I'm, again, somewhere in the middle ground there where if someone asks me, I tell them. Also, the same as you, I have I was very active in organizing meetups and groups uh, where I used to live up near Glasgow because there was a, a very large pool of people. And, you know, two emails and you could get 20, 30, 50 people together to meet in a pub very easily. And I used to organize all that. And then I moved and I moved a little bit further under the stick so it became harder and harder and now i've kind of circled back around and i live in a, a smallish town and i've met one other guy just down the road from me um and we occasionally get together for a coffee and a chat and i've tried to organize bigger events and then just recently i went you know what no i don't i'm not you know like you say um i, I feel that I, there's no the best way to maybe reach people is is the likes of this, a small podcast. And if, if the right person hears it and it makes them think that's great job done, but yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and, and preach about it. I'm just going to speak to people like yourself, uh, say what I think here, uh, in some cases, an opposing argument or, or a different point of view, maybe broaden my understanding of the world around me and then move on. Have a nice yeah. night's sleep get up and yeah. you know provide for my family that's kind of the, the the ultimate goal at the end of the day but that's i mean that that's really it that's what it comes down to for me that's sort of in the last year how things have changed from you know producing shows for up is down and trying to create a product through that platform and through that medium that's effective and i, I still think i do a pretty good job but my desire has shifted a lot more to really just preserving what kind of future I might be able to carve out for myself and my little family and so and I realized that that takes a lot more effort than searching through audio clips and videos and trying to find evidence of the lies I mean I know enough about the lies that are out there to know that there are many many lies out there and I don't really need to dig around so much anymore so lately I just think those about subjects and topics that I find particularly interesting that I think deserve yeah. a little bit of highlight and illumination but moreover, I've just been shifting my physical desire towards like living out through example. And I'm, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say is instead of inspiring people to, to question things through the art of podcasting, which is a crazy art in itself and a strange community, um, I've, I've really just started to like, really break away and decentralize from from even podcasting, but also from like jobs and socialization. And, and I'm just kind of doing my own thing out here. And there's been a lot of people who I interact with, especially in this little town with the things I've been doing around here lately, as far as like the fire department and stuff, where there are, there's a little bit of envy there. Like there's some people that I, that I work with and that I work around who really admire to some capacity and they want what I have, which is, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm freelancing I don't have a regular job type job and I'm working for cash. I'm trying to grow my own vegetables and build up my little decentralized house here out, not really out in the woods. It's we're kind of outside of the town of this little tiny town. So we're in the rural area, but not super rural. We, you know, we can see our neighbors and I'm just trying to build things up here. And there's a lot of people that I know that are still trapped and 
job systems and wage slavery and, and toxic relationships that see me moving around freely in the wilderness, carving out a path, and they want that, you know? So I just kind of keep doing what I'm doing and trying to remind people that all they have to do is quit. They just have to quit and they have to be on comfortable with being uncomfortable and not having any real security and that's a but that's a terrifying notion for people still you know they admire from afar but given the chance to do it themselves most of the time they're not going to do it yeah that just reminded me that the episode you did about um um, home homesteading that was that that, i mean that hit home and and i've um i listened to a I'm lucky enough to be able to listen to podcasts while I'm, while I'm at work. I can just put like an like one earpiece in and act yeah. like it's my hands free because I, I work up, up ladders and stuff a lot. So people just think I'm being safe. <laughs> I'm like listening to podcasts at double speed so I can listen to eight or nine in a day, like you know. But um, <laughs> and I've heard that mentioned on, uh, and I'm gonna say oh, maybe legit bat, maybe um, false reality check, but. There's been a few podcasts where they've said, "Oh, Dean's take on the, the the homesteading, and it's it's more decentralization." And I think a lot of people have um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, um, not, I was going to say triggered, not, not triggered's the wrong word. Um, that they've realised. You know I mean, that there's a lot of power in words, and this this like circling around to like back to religion and the occult and, and words themselves. I think. The, the way you phrased it and the way you broke it down it is it was you know inspirational to, to say the least and I, when I was listening to it I thought yeah you're right you know people compare themselves to this and that you know meanwhile they're using a you know 180 high definition camera to film themselves so they can put it on YouTube to say how they're going yeah. back to the the 18th century yeah they're, <laughs> yeah, they're like, DIYing you're like, they're yeah, building all this stuff with all these great power tools, and it's all name brand, top of the line stuff. And it's like, dude, read the Grapes of Wrath. You're not, you're not homesteading. You're doing oh, something great, and you should keep doing it. But you should stop calling it what it isn't. You know, first yes. of all, the government is not handing people ten thousand acres of land for four dollars anymore. Like that's not happening because there is no more so-called land to give away. And even back then, I mean, most of that land grab was grabbed up by major corporations, even in the twenties, you know? And so if if that's happened a hundred years ago and it still happens today, you know, I mean, I just, I don't know. I just, it's been, it's been a, it's been a long time since I read it, but on Walden's pond, are you familiar? Mm -hmm. That, that, because when you were speaking uh, about decentralization, I thought, on Walden's pond, that that's what he he did. He was effectively decentralizing himself and and avoiding contact with the the local town. But he went in and you know if he needed a handful of nails, he would go in and say like, "Oh, I need some nails." Uh, but you know he had no money, so he would do a day's labor to get the nails to you know. Yeah. Uh, and then in one point, he I think if I remember rightly, he got paid to move a load of timber that someone didn't want, like an old shed or something, but then used that to build his own house, but got paid. <laughs> and then the money he made from moving it, he saved because he didn't need to buy the materials because the guy had asked him to get rid of the materials, which he did. But yeah, do you know what I mean? And it was like this little circular thing where he, yeah. you know, someone didn't want something. So he took it and used it and got paid by the guy that didn't want it anymore, where if if the guy had waited five minutes, he might have offered to pay him to take it away. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. but you know, if you 
pathetic, you know. Yeah, it's part like, way, yeah. There's always someone that wants to get rid of something, and if you and if you need that something, and you say, "Well, I'll tell you what, I'll come and shift it for you for free," they'll be like, "Oh, great," you know. And and better still, if you say, "Well, I, you know, I can shift that for you for you know hundred dollars, and I'll, I'll get it away for you," um, you know, like rubble and stuff. You know, if you want a hardcore foundation, if you're building something, you know, you can either buy the hardcore or you can find someone who's knocked a wall down that needs the wall shifted. Yeah, you know, but there's there's that whole symbiotic potential within society that has been battered out of us you know everything's been assigned a value uh, i mean value money is nothing more than an assignment of your time and energy isn't it i mean at the end of the day yeah if you're willing to give that time and energy to so what you do with the money you buy the thing that you want but if you can get that thing without using the money then you know what i mean it's it, it is it's a circular argument sometimes, but oddly enough, I'll just circle back around to what you said about <laughs> your mum being the complete opposite to you. Yeah. Obviously when you were growing up, I'm, I'm going to speculate here. You obviously grew up, you know, with your, your mum, your dad, possibly um, being somewhat uh, air quotes, normal. And then at what point did you get the red pill? What was the thing that suddenly made you realize that things aren't quite as they seem? Well, that's a complicated question because there's been numerous pinnacles throughout my life where I just knew and I had a lot of real confirmation that what you see in this world tangibly in three dimensions is not always the case, you know, and and I mean, I mean, even when I was a very, very, very young child, I remember like knowing that I was part of a larger ecosystem, but I didn't even know what an ecosystem was. I just knew that I was part of a larger ecosystem of things. And I had a, I had a super normal childhood. I grew up with my mom, mostly, you know, like divorced, divorced parents. I was born in the late seventies and I was a C-section child. Cause that was how, it's just how things were done. I was vaccinated as a kid. I've had no crazy allergies. I mean, honestly, I, I did have a, and I still live with a very interesting skin condition um, that was really, really intense for my first like 14 years. Um, and then I was 15, 16, going through puberty pretty intensely. And then I started getting high and smoking pot. And then my skin condition just vanished overnight. And I don't know if that was, I mean, it was literally, it seemed like it was overnight. And I don't know if it had anything to do with the cannabis or just my body changing. Um, but I had a you know, super normal childhood for the most part. There was, you know, there was the same kind of things that anyone had in the 80s. There was all kinds of strife and danger. And it's the same thing now. There was joy and there was sorrow and there was pain and there was loss and all these things. But I always knew that I was part of a larger system, a larger ecosystem, and that I, and that I had some sort of, some sort of perspective on it that was a little bit different than my friends, but it wasn't until I was in my late teens, I think when I started taking psychedelic drugs and LSD and things like that, that I started having some really interesting phenomenal experiences. And I mean, phenomenal as far as I was witnessing a particular kind of phenomena that I didn't really understand, but it was mind blowing. And then as I was able to do more research about what I had just experienced while I was under the influence of psychedelics, 
it started opening up different ideas that time is not a linear thing and that matter and three-dimensional matter and, and substance is not a linear thing either. And so, um, so that was probably one of the first big wake up calls for me that, that the three-dimensional world that we think we live in is just one illusion on top of another illusion underneath another illusion. And so that carried with me for a long time. And I kind of forgot about it because I was more concerned about making art and painting and just expanding that type of thinking and that type of experience. All I wanted to do was just be broke and be an artist. I was in love with the Francis Bacon, Caravaggio type bastard art life, living on the fringes and absolute abject poverty and living to make artwork. And that carried me into a different town where I got, you know, three things happened that I swore would never happen. I fell in love with someone, got married, had a child and bought a house all within the same like couple of years. And this was right during the 2015, 2016 um, election cycle when I was undergoing in a tremendous amount of stress. I've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast before, but it was yeah, during the yeah. 2016 election cycle that I started seeing like, oh man, like all the stuff that I'm seeing on TV is fucking fake because I started listening to podcasts and I started doing some internet research. And I'd always been like adverse to computers and technology. I was always very much a caveman, hands-on type person. I would read the actual books instead of just listening to them. Um, yeah, but I'll I started talk. digging around and stuff. And then I just sort of saw, you know, I saw the 2016 election cycle in the United States and I was like, okay, there's definitely something else going on. And that just opened up a huge can of worms. So I think like the big red pill for me was psychedelic experiences in my mid teens. And then that all those like inversions were really confirmed in reality when I wasn't high on psychedelics in my late teens. And then in my late, uh, I guess, late twenties, early thirties, when I was found myself as a new, you know, a new dad and a homeowner and a husband. And none of these things were satisfactory to me. I mean, I, there were, I was satisfied with them, but I wasn't, I didn't have the emotional faculty with which to cope with those transitions in my life spiritually and, and emotionally. So, um, so I was looking around for other avenues. Mm. That's, that's an, an interesting take. So not, not so much as a, not so much a red pill, but more uh, a red saline drip that just kept dripping away until it took effect. Would that, would that be more? Yeah, you know, yeah, like when I, they add, you know, when they add morphine to the saline and they can adjust the flow of, <laughs> see, you know, when you're in hospital and they adjust it to, you know, three drips a second and one drip or whatever, you you just slowly realize that things weren't that you didn't have that nine eleven moment where you suddenly just, you know, woke up and went, oh my god, you know, shock to the system. Well, yeah, yeah, there were just little nudges. There were nudges one after another after another. 9-11 was a big one for me. Like, it's, it's just weird. I mean, that wasn't like a big one where I was like, oh, my God, it wasn't a shock of the system. It was just something that when I woke up that day and I saw what was going on without having any reason to know why, I just knew that there was something what we call rotten in Denmark. You know, there was something yeah. fishy about it. It just didn't add up. And there was no way that I would know that. I just knew it innately, like instinctually. I knew that it was, there was something rotten there. And then, yeah. you know, that just kind of kept building and building and building until, you know, 
15 years later, only halfway paying attention. And another part of it too was the the um, the WTO riots in, in Seattle area before 9-11 and seeing all that stuff going on. And I knew that there was something very interesting happening politically in our country, but I felt like an outsider. I felt like I was an alien just passing through. I only had one job in this life and that was to make art and die. And, uh, and, and so then when 9-11 happened and then, you know, the 2016 election and the whole George Bush, the, you know, the Iraq war, all these things I knew were, were fucked up and corrupted and wrong. And, and some sort of weird other system was at play, but it was something I didn't really have any interest in at all. I just felt like I was, it was beneath me. I was above all of it. And uh, I didn't want to be involved. I didn't want to have an opinion. And I think that was a lot of it was kind of to go way to circle back, I guess, to the beginning, kind of like my mom, to actually follow through with these questions that I was having during all of that stuff from 9-11 to the Iraq war to everything else. To follow up on those questions was nudging me towards questioning my worldview. And for the longest time, like 15 or 20 years, I simply didn't want to question my worldview because I had decided, I had made a decision that my job was to make art and that is it. I don't want to get involved with the earthly shit. I just want to make art and I want to have a connection to that and then I want to die. And then it just became, it became something inescapable, you know, where I just was nudged toward the questioning of my worldview and then I had to question it and then I've, I've never been, I've never been the same since, you know. No, yeah, no, you you never are on once you once you start questioning, and like you say, because it's an unanswerable question in, in some cases, it 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 can either become um, uh, another form of addiction, it can become a very it can become a burden, or oh, very much or, so, yes, or you can push it to the back of your mind, and and it can be it's, a, it's an old expression that the monkey on your back, you know, it'll always be clinging there while you're walking around trying to get on with stuff you'll just have right. that beast on right. your shoulder constantly and yeah. you'll be be it'll, it'll never let you go and i don't think anyone can really that particular question if it, if it takes root you can't metaphorically stick it in a box and then hide it in the back of a cupboard it, it, you know it's it's just there and and you'll always know it's there and you'll never yeah. get away from it that's 100 percent why i can you know I can hold on to a lot of forgiveness for people who don't do it because from what I've experienced in the last five years or so of actually really questioning these things and, and digging into, you know, the, the, the fake history that we've been given the fake timeline that we've been given um, the fake idea of the shape of our cosmos, the fake idea of our organized religions, all these things that I can easily punch holes through. Um, it's a terrifying and sad and lonely burden to be able to do that and to not be able to stop. You're right. It is very much an addictive thing. Like once you, it's the, it's the Nietzschean thing. Once you stare into the, the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. And so when it comes to people like my mom, you know, like I would never want her to question her worldview, anything like the way that I do, because I'm young and fit enough and I have energy and time on my hands to actually reformulate my worldview and to remain hungry and to keep moving forward and keep digging. She doesn't, you know, and I, and she, and she enjoys very, very simple things, very simple pleasures, you know, and, uh, and those, 
those even those simple pleasures would would be changed the value of those would be changed to a certain degree i mean knowing what we know about things simply having a cup of coffee and a cigarette isn't quite the same as when you didn't know the consequences of coffee and nicotine <laughs> yeah well, well it's like um back right back to the beginning of the episode when i said it's a blessing and a curse that i can um almost decompartmentalize my, my my thoughts and my emotions as it were like you say being abstract or, or just disengaging or whatever i can watch a film and enjoy the film for the film's sake and at the same time i can also watch the same film and pull it apart for all the imagery the colors the, the hidden symbolism you know oh yeah uh, you, you mean so i i can i can sit and watch a as it were an enjoyable film and hate it because i can see the programming going on in the background yeah. or I, I can sit sit with the family and just watch a film and enjoy the family time and ignore yeah, yeah we everything. just did that we just did that last week at the little theater here in our town we went to go see a movie because uh, my my daughter she had seen the first one and there was part two it was dr strange part two and we were at the mm. theater and um we'd been kind of running around all day me and her and then my lady she got done with her job she she owns her own her own store here and so we all kind of met at just you know the time to go to the movies and i had a little flask of some some whiskey and uh and the, the dr strange thing you know the whole marvel stuff is very interesting i don't know if you listened or read anything from chris knowles but it's very strange replacement theory of, of our former uh, theosophy has all been replaced by superheroes. You know, he has this great book called um, Our God's Worst Spandex. But, you know, Doctor Strange <laughs> is just another just another franchise off of that and another branch. And the Doctor Strange movies is all about dreams and lucid dreaming and manifestation and all these things. And so my Sorry. my beautiful woman, uh, my beautiful woman, Christy, that's her wheelhouse. Like she is very knowledgeable and very interested in in all of all of the very uh i i would say kind of like lofty esoteric cos cosmology of lucid dreaming and manifestation and and the the cosmo just the cosmology of it i am too but to a lesser degree because like i've said it's it's an unanswerable question it's fundamentally subjective and it just keeps me running on a hamster wheel that i'm just too busy for so we all went to the movies and um she was digging in and, and uh, uh, deconstructing the movie as it was going and recognizing all of the symbolism and all of the suggestive nature of the film. My daughter was enjoying the flashing colors and I was just sitting there drinking whiskey and enjoying the flashing colors too. Like I knew <laughs> that if I was going to actually watch the movie, I would only, you know, I would have to shift my, my perspective to a deconstructive lens. And I just didn't want to do that that particular night. So but it's all no. there, you know. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Like I can, I can, I can just watch the movie, or I can pick it apart and try to find the things, you know. But that occasion, I just, I chose to just watch the movie and drink some whiskey. While we were talking, I made, I made a note when you said about uh, psychedelics because I've not, apart from uh, alcohol, I've not done any kind of drugs. I've not smoked, uh, no hallucinogens, whatever. Yeah, I have meditated to the point where I've managed to astral project myself into another room <laughs> believe it or not yeah. which freaked which freaked my wife out somewhat because she she actually passed me in the corridor uh to come wow. to our bedroom and found me still lying in the bed and and she woke me up and said i you know what 
are you trying to astro because we're, we've kind of got the same kind of um, uh, ethos, you know, like belief system. And I said, oh, I was just imagining myself in the corridor. And she went, well, you were, you were stood there <laughs> and I just walked by you and that's freaked me out. So try not to do that too much. Yeah. <laughs> but, but o- over the last year, and, and I've, I, I think I've tweeted about this uh, a couple of times over the last year or so, I've been occasionally I'll have these incredibly vivid dreams, vivid to the point that when I wake up, I actually feel like I've actually been pulled from another, another timeline, another reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the first time that happened, it was very disconcerting because, and again, I'm not like these dreams. They're not, they're not exciting. I'm not James Bond. I'm not skydiving or anything like that. I'm doing very normal things, you know, pushing a shopping trolley around. And on, on this particular, the, the first one, I was driving the kids to school and they were in the back of the car driving along. And then suddenly I'm in a bed. And I'm freaking out because I'm no longer driving the car and what's happening to my kids. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? yeah. And it was, it took me a second to, you know, and I'm going to air quotes again, wake up. But ever since that happened, and I've had a few more since where I'm going around my normal business and then I suddenly wake up, I'm left with that odd sensation and wondering have I woken up or did I fall asleep in the other reality? And this is my dream. And that, that's been a bit of a puzzler for me. You know, I'm quite, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm in the reality I should be now, but I can't be sure, you know, and that, that whole, you know, like say astral, um, transcendental kind of possibility is, is a fascinating, um, a fascinating thought process in the least if, if nothing else yeah it's 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 super fun to think about um but to me it just it just sucks up so much time you know and i mean I, i'm thinking about these things all the time they're spinning around my little head day and night um just knowing that like okay i'm working on my truck yeah and in some other in some other dimension or timeline there's a different me who's maybe dreaming about working on my truck or there's a different me who is asleep or who is working in the garden or who, you know, is a a baby being fed by his mother or something like that, you know, and it's just, it's, it's fun to think about that kind of stuff because it it really helps me to not take what I'm doing so seriously to, to do my best and, and to apply myself to what I'm doing in this, in this tangible way that has feeling, I can actually grip it and hold it and know that there's a consequence but to, to know that it's just as likely that there's just different versions and different timelines of the same activity happening in different dimensions, I think that's really comforting, you know? Yeah, interesting. So, yeah. so in keeping with the, the very loose format that I have, in that respect then, if you were able to take a blue pill and reset everything back to not knowing what you know now, is there a point in time that you'd you'd like to be? I don't think so. You know, I mean, I I guess the way that I I hear that question would be, what was the best time of your life? And you, you, you sorry, you, you can have that. Um, you can take it either way you want. Is, is there um, 
is there a point like for example would you like if you could take the blue pill and be in the 18th century out homesteading do you think that's where you'd like to be or or, or again like you say or you, or you can bring it back to a more mundane kind of question that it is and say yeah if i could go back to you know when i was 10 and i didn't care or you know all i cared about was skateboarding and and uh, grunge music do you mean I, yeah um, yeah I, I think i know what you mean i think you know if, if there was a blue pill that i could take to go back or go forward into a you know a, a, a different timeline i think honestly i would this is going to sound weird but like i really anticipate uh collapse and i don't think it's happening I, I really don't think that these systems are going to collapse overnight. I think they're slowly going to disintegrate very, very slowly. Definitely not in our lifetime. There'll be certain systems that are going to disappear and go away. I'm thinking possibly like libraries, perhaps the mail system. These things are going to get usurped by other systems and replaced. But honestly, I think that the type of timeline that I anticipate moving into or back to would be something close to um a collapse a collapse of this realm a apocalypse kind of thing i guess what i'm saying is i think i'm more i'm more fit and i would fit in better in a situation where things were very 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 simple you know survive find water make food connect with other human beings Find, yeah. maybe, maybe find some others, build structure, mobilize, remain mobile, you know, transient. And I guess, you know, to a certain degree, desperate. I think it's in that kind of ultimate, very, you know, almost Neolithic kind of primitive simplicity is where I would prefer to be. Because having that kind of perspective that I have about things, which is not lofty, and it's not superior by any means. It's just as flawed and stupid and circular as anyone else's. I think I would fit in and I would be a lot more content just having the basic simplicity of survival rather than being, you know, being forced to witness and contend with such an elaborate, sprawling mind control operation that is just ramping up minute by minute by minute. It's really, really frustrating and it's really hard to recognize it for what it is and try to mm. somehow remain simple and grounded when everything is literally everything seems to be pulling us up by our roots into some new realm, whether it's transhumanism or absolute automation or, you know, just staying home and having everything delivered because you can't trust anyone. You can't see anyone's faces because they're all wearing masks because they're all under the mind control of some problem with the air or the problem with the soil or the problem with the water when i know that the truth is that we're being poisoned on all on on all sides deliberately poisoned on all sides from the air to the water to the ground fuck the covid thing that has i mean that is such a it's such a make-believe fart compared to the actual real damage that is deliberate and happening every single day just from spraying in the skies there's no way to know what they're possibly spraying us with and how that's affecting things i mean we know but we can never prove it because we're kookified and the the mind control uh, operation is so elaborate and so slow, but also so deeply effective and rooted that we just we simply have to contend with it. 
you know, and it makes things very, very complicated. And so what I strive for would be as a very, very primitive simplicity, something probably more akin to like a Mad Max kind of world where the threat of death is real, like actual real. And you'd have to really use your brain and your body to, uh, you know, secure yourself away from that annihilation. Yeah. I think I said to you a while back, I'm going to say maybe on Twitter, but um, when you were volunteering as a fireman and I said, and you know, you said you got that sense of, um, you know, like self-worth that you're actually doing something that actually meant something plus getting trained and, and actually learning a beneficial skill, not only for your immediate um, community, but for yourself as well. Uh, and I said to you, um, for me, it was mountain rescue. And I've, I've never felt better, not, not when I've rescued someone or been part of a team that's rescued someone, but in the whole process of that training, um, finding myself in the middle of nowhere, on my back or about my person in my pockets or whatever, I could stop at any given point, make myself comfortable, make myself a hot drink, a hot meal, you know, put a shelter up, even sleep if I have to, you know, comfortably and then get up and carry on moving. And that, that lifestyle always appealed to me, you know, like just stopping where, where, you know, you find a place that's just right, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, you know trees. Rob, I, I, I think the reason why that is appealing to, to you and to me is because I think that, like you said, uh, you mentioned earlier, you kind of suggested that perhaps there's a genetic connection there, you know, and you're I think you mentioned it in the context of having the kind of perspective that people like you and I have. But I think it's much more deeper than that. I think that we have a very, very deep ancestral longing to repeat that type of mobility and that type of transient um, migratory patterns we have the it's very deeply rooted in our brains and our bodies are dialed in for that type of extreme living and what we've been encountering in the last you know 300 years is the complete antithesis of that where everything has been yeah. supposedly simplified and systemized um, for us by our oh so loving governments to make life easy and then people like us who are biologically we are biologically and like trained and prepared and wired for the opposite, for a primitive and a more harsh living condition. So we find discomfort in this cushy system of technology and electronics. And it's not like it's just uncomfortable. It's just that it's, it's not natural for people like yeah. myself, you know, we, um, we, we, been um we've been around scotland like way up to the north way down to the south of scotland in the borders and stuff and i was always in uh, what we call tide accommodation so like the the job came with a, a house or some kind of accommodation and once your job was finished then you had to move out you know if you stayed there all your life that was fine if you were there for a three-year contract but ultimately we never owned our own house but when we finally bought our own house when we were looking um, I let the wife kind of choose where she wanted to sell. But every time we looked at a property, I I was always looking for the nearest water source. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was always there, you know? So like even in the middle of the town, I'd be like, where's the nearest river? Where's that, you know? And then when we fell on this place that we're in now, if I look out my window, I look down into a valley 
uh, and I pretty much overlook almost. It's I'm gonna. It's not the the River Tweed, but it's a decent river, you know, mm-hmm. and it's there. And I know if I needed to, I could sort of just walk down there and get a couple of buckets and lug it back up to the house without too much bother, you know. Yeah. Um, but that. Live, but that's that's like, my. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Go on. We uh, live within earshot of a not a huge river, but and it's they call it a creek, but it's a pretty wide creek. It's probably about fifty feet wide, and it's pretty deep, and it flows. But it's within earshot, so we can hear it every night and every yeah. day. And you know, we always we always talk about the collapse around here in this household, and we have a well on our little property. We only have like an acre and a half, but we have a well, so we have our own water source. And so, but the, yeah, when you. Sorry, sorry to interrupt there, because like obviously a well is a, is a fantastic addition to to any kind of property. But when yeah. you look at your your creek, um, there's fish in there. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, the the your your when you look at a river, you don't think of just water. You think of a food source as well. Do you oh, yeah, mean? Not, yeah, not like just that. fish, but there's also. I mean, there's plenty of deer. There's deer that yeah. walk through our property and destroy our garden every day. <laughs> so yeah, and, and at some point they have like to drink. Crazy, yeah, there's there's squirrels, there's yep. uh, there's possum, there's skunks, there's raccoons, there's cougar, there's hawks, there's all kinds of birds. I mean, there's plenty of food all around us if we really had to get down to it. And so we always talk about like the collapse here, and you know when things get bad and all this kind of stuff. And it's grateful that we have we have water. And what happens when there's no power, then that means that there's no gas because all the gas is pumped up through electric pumps. Yep. And then how long would it be until someone steals a gas tanker? And then what would they do with it? Would they parcel it off to people? Would they just hoard it? Would they sell it to the so-called enemy? Would they hold it for ransom? And all these things. And so when we talk about the coming collapse, in, in, in the casual joking way that we talk about it, because we're always like subtly subconsciously preparing ourselves for things. We're not really preppers. And I kind of laugh at the people that prep themselves out with tons and they're stocking up on guns and ammo for whatever. I mean, if there was ever going to be a big power outage or a big grid breakdown, the people that have lots of guns and ammo and food, they're going to be targeted by their own neighbors before any communists come and try to take their shit, you know? So, yeah. I mean the the first rule of um, being a prepper is not to be a prepper, isn't it? You know, yeah. don't let everyone know. You know, don't tell everyone you've got the bunker and six year supply of food. You know, you, you yeah, you know, you've got to act the part and just be like, well, you know, shrug your shoulders. I know I, I haven't got a load of you know rice and beans shoved in my basement. Do you know I mean? Yeah, and so, that, you know that kind of lends itself to a different level of thinking I've had over the last maybe six eight months. Is like you know we don't have we're not prepped out with tons of guns and ammo and food and, but we have a well. And more than that, we have, we have a lot of skills. Like that's why I've been really gung ho about building my skill set with the fire department and freelancing with people out here. There's a lot of horses, there's a lot of cattle and goats and people have livestock and farms and ranches, orchards, vineyards, there's a tremendous amount of skilled labor needed and wanted. Know, and when you can, I've been learning how to work understanding the different types of um, botanicals and the types of animals and organisms and how they need to be, you know, uh, kept 
and building barns, building structures, digging wells, you know, things like that, building fences, like how to use different kinds of tools. Having a four wheel drive truck to get up into the hills around here has been tremendously valuable. That's why yeah. I, kind of, I got to keep my, my rig running. But it's like, so in the event of some shit hit the fan scenario, and so you don't have a bunch of guns or ammo or food, but if you have some skills that are needed, if you have a power source or if you have the ability to frame houses or you have equipment that you can dig and excavate or you can just use your, your, you know, your elbow grease and just your muscle yeah. as a laborer for these other people. I mean, I think that's, that's so to me, that's exponentially more valuable than having a bunch of stuff stocked up in a, bunker you know yeah you, you said about systems changing and things like libraries disappearing um mm -hmm. i'm i'm very kind of old school it's it's a again it's a blessing and a curse because when you move house books are heavy yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah they're yeah. really heavy but um what we have a, a lot of books on is um you know like say um herb identification um mushroom identification I've got a lot of old how it was done books, um, you know, like how to make a lathe out of, you know, like rope and, a, and a, a springy sapling, you know, as opposed to, you know, like a pedal lathe. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean, you know, where you get the block of wood and then you wrap the rope around it and then you treadle it. So it, it spin, spins one way and then back the other. But um, very primitive. But I've got books on all that and they're obviously hard copies. So in the event of any kind of power failure, all these things will be. I mean, I I don't I have read them and I put a lot of stuff to to use, but they can be handed on to my kids and say, you know, you need to read this and understand that life can actually go on without Wi-Fi. Yeah, you know, you know, it may seem, it may seem like it's impossible, but you know, I, I think you're you're probably. I mean, I'm I know I'm older than you. I'm pretty sure I'm older than you because I'm fifty three. So, but you you were you're old enough to know a time without internet, aren't you? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, and uh, I mean, yeah. honestly, I avoided the internet for a long time. The internet came to my high school before I dropped out, I think maybe the year or two before I dropped out. And so by the time internet was part of school, I was so detached from school already, you know, and I just yeah. never had an interest in it until, gosh, man, until I was probably almost 30 years old and I'm 43 now. So Right, yeah. So, but had been around. But my my kids find it funny that we had a, a childhood without the internet. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean they 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 can't yeah. imagine a time without a mobile phone and instant access to information, um, map, maps as well. It, it, when we go, if we ever go to a strange city or a, a new place, I'm forever pointing out landmarks. You know. As we're walking around, I say, "Oh, remember that clock tower? That's very distinctive, you know." Or look at that aerial over there. Or you know, we park the car here. Look, there's a shop over there. And sometimes the kids will be like, oh, "Dad, if I, if I just do Google Maps," yeah, <laughs> means, yeah, yeah. But wait, if you've lost your phone, <laughs> what are you going to do then? Do you know yeah. You've got to have a sense of direction. You know, you've got to be able to translate the world that you live in. Um, not just digitally, but analog as well. You need to have that analog mentality sometimes. But yeah, I, I, and, and, I totally agree. But they haven't grown up in that world, so for them, it's like it's no, no. If anything goes wrong, I'll you know I'll just walk in, you know, I'll find a policeman or whatever, and, and ask him what 
what to do. Yeah. Probably the last person you want to be asking, you know, <laughs> um, because that, you know, because I, I can guarantee if the if the grid went down and you went up to a policeman and said, "I'm lost. I need to find my way back to wherever," they would pull their phone out and go, "Oh, me, me GPS is bust. I don't know where I'm at." You know, what I mean, yeah. they'll be in exactly the same boat because they're the same age as you, you know. So, yeah, yeah no, it'll be, it would be an. In- I think it's pretty funny how how um, how quickly things are moving into that like instant that instant click kind of gratification and all the questions answered until they're not you know and, and until you don't get a signal and then you don't know where you're going. I have terrible sense of direction, and I mean I'm I default to Google Maps all the time, just but it's always like just once you know I use the Google Maps to get to where I'm going and then I remember how to get there so I never have yeah. to use it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, my um, we've currently got two cars because uh, me and the wife both have separate jobs now. So uh, we've bought like a little, like a cheap runner, like a proper, not not an old banger, but like a proper little run round. And because I, I do the more miles, I have the unreliable old car to do to just something that doesn't matter when it breaks down. It'll be, for, for example, the other day the exhaust went on it. And the replacement for the exhaust was actually worth more than the car. Yeah. So my, so my cousin who has his own garage, he, he said, well, we can just take, we can weld another bit of exhaust piping as opposed to replacing the entire, you know. So they did that, which was more cost effective than me buying, because you know, literally I went, oh, well, you know, if it's going to be 600 pounds for a new exhaust, I might as well just buy another 600 pound car. <laughs> Do you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But as it happens, you know, touch wood, he's done a good job on it and it's still running. So, you know, just keep it going. Um, but in that car, I have an old, well, I say old, it's um, 2000, I'm going to say 2020 Road Atlas. Like one I bought in a in a supermarket, you know, like a Walmart. You know, sometimes they have like last year's Road Atlases, you know, for like 99 cents or whatever. I just bit an eye out. Both cars have a have a proper old fashioned road atlas in, you know. So if you have to just pick it up and flick through it to see what road you're on and find your way back, you've got hard copy there. Plus, if you if the car breaks down, you know you get out, you pick that weighs nothing, shove it in your back pocket, and then just walk. But you can't take you can't take your GPS out and the car battery. <laughs> Do you know what I mean yeah. walking around with a car battery under your arm trying to power the GPS? No, no. Good old-fashioned yeah. paper map, and actually understand how they use it. Uh, and I've, I've always tried to teach the kids how to map read and navigate. Uh, the eldest did what we call the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme, which is like a, an outward-bound kind of, you know. So they've learned how to map read. The youngest hasn't so far. Um, you know, I can't get time to, or when I free up time to try and explain it to them, they're very much like. Ah, interested and you, you can't force someone to you hit the nail on the head about when you said you were disengaged with school if, if you're disengaged with learning it doesn't matter how how important the information is if you're just not engaged in learning it there's just no hope you need to enjoy what you're being taught to take it on board yeah. fully that that would be yeah you have to have an interest in it or something about it has to that's the that's a challenging part about having like my, my daughter, she's eight years old and she loves learning as long as what she's learning is interesting to her. And so there's yeah. lots of things that aren't interesting that she has a hard time understanding, like some mathematics and things like that. And so I'm having to try to remember how I can 
frame some of the math exercises or just bring mathematics into our, our lives in a way that are relative to the things that she's interested in so that well, she can kind of latch on to that, the fact that there's a mathematical element to whatever it is that she's doing, you know? Yeah, but that's um, spending money is, you know, like when you teach your kids how to uh, account for their money, you know, like um, you've got a $10 bill in your, your purse, you take it out, you hand it to a guy for something that he says costs a dollar, you should get $9 back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, you can use that as I mean that's very basic maths, but we're slowly creeping into a society where kids go in, they pick something up, they tap a bit of plastic on a screen, they don't realize that that's come out of their bank balance. They don't, you know, what I mean they they they, yeah. they don't have that tangible analog connection with taking something out of an object and handing it to someone and then getting something back. Now we can argue about the whole value of fiat currency but ultimately <laughs> the, the tangibility of knowing that you've handed someone something and got something back is more relevant than just tapping a screen that beeps you know yeah, and then yeah, the next day you get a piece of paper through the mail saying you are you now owe us money because you've overdrawn or whatever yeah um, yeah where and i, I mean the, i used to get those all the time yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean anymore. This, I mean, obviously we're in different parts of the world, but um, I think this would hold true in America as it does in the United Kingdom. If I have, like, a, we'll call it a twenty-dollar bill in my in my wallet, that twenty-dollar bill can last months up until I spend a dollar of it, and then as soon as it's what we call broken, you know, like you you hand a a 20 over and you get a 10 and a five and four ones in change yeah. all of a sudden they go very quickly <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> all of a sudden it's oh it's only a dollar oh i've got a dollar oh it's yeah. only five i'll put you yeah it's broken if, into little pieces that's what i tell yeah. my little one too i'm like you yeah. could, she has a, a piggy bank jar and you know we're i'm, I'm always kind of helping her put money in there and she's always wanting to pull it out to buy stuff because she's an eight-year-old girl you know she yeah. wants to buy candy and treats and toys and of course, like, you know, she can do that. It's, it's her money. But I always remind her that, you know, you can just let it, you can let it grow. If you just leave it alone, mm. like a plant, like a flower, you just let it grow. And it'll like the next time you come to your piggy bank, there'll be more money in there. Yeah. You just not touch it. And you just let it grow and let it grow and let it grow. And then when we go to the pharmacy or whatever to get something, because um, the pharmacies around here, it's like the, you can get your medications. We don't, none of us here are on medications, but you can get medication, but you can also get all your household goods and even like, you know, spare parts and tools and things like that. But they also have like toys. So yeah. she always sees stuff that she wants to buy. And I say, well, you know, you can, you can spend your money if you want, or you can let it grow. And then she was on me a few weeks ago because she wanted to get um, a bunny. She wanted to get some bunnies because we have, you know, we have a little bit of land and we have some space. We can build, we could have bunnies. Sure. We could have bunnies. But she just thought that I would just go get her a bunny and we would have this new animal in our family. And I had to tell her that she's old enough to make that sacrifice herself. She's going to have to like, we'll, we'll accommodate, you know, bunnies, but bunnies are going to turn into rabbits yeah. and uh, <laughs> they're not always going to be bunnies and they're living things. They're not toys and they need yeah. care every single day, not just on the weekends. And they need a special house to live in. That's comfortable for them. That's more than comfortable. And you have to help me build that. You have to s save your money 
to buy this animal's life so we can integrate it into our own. And then you have to commit to being with it all the time. Is that, is that really what you want to do? You know? And, yeah. And that, that $20 rabbit suddenly starts costing $20 uh, a month for feed bedding. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing. The upkeep of an animal is, uh, and that, that goes across the board, all animals, it, it, yeah. like, you know, to, to be blunt, when you have kids, they're, they're a small animal that you need to look after. You know, you can't just say, well, that was nice. Thanks. I'll stick it in a corner. You know, they still have to be fed and watered. You know, to be, you know yeah, how to be taken care of. There's a lot of horses around here. And I mean, I had no idea about horses. I've always never really been around them. But my beautiful woman, she's been around horses her whole life. And so when we moved here, she's starting to get back into riding. And she's forming some really, really strong relationships with these stable owners and who have their own kind of they have their own arenas and they board people's horses and she's been able to watch a a foal being birthed and watch the mating process and and the the horse vet come down and like she's telling me how much you know these animals cost how much it costs to board a horse and how you know someday it would be kind of nice to have our own horse but then we'd have to have a bigger truck because we'd need a trailer (laughs) yeah you know we'd have to have, you know, another acre or two of land to have this horse to have enough space. And so it's all these things. There's like this idea that you have almost like a child, childlike idea of like, you know, people have these ideas of homesteading. This is one of the things I had the gripe yeah. I had with homesteading. It's like, oh, you're going to have livestock and you're going to have animals and you're going to have the space. But like, you know, you can ask my friend Adam from Debbie Red Pilled. I mean, it's like yeah, a yeah. full-time job just maintaining seven sheep and a dozen chickens. That's full-time every day. Those animals got to be turned out. They get loose. They got to be rustled up again. They need to be taken care of. The sheep need to be shorn, yep. um, you know, and then once you get your goats or your sheeps and they start to um, nurse, you got to, you know, keep them, keep milking these animals every day. Otherwise they go dry and like, it's a full-time commitment. So you can't do that if you have a full-time job, even if you work from home for six hours a day, you probably could, uh, but it's a full-time commitment. I remember seeing this firsthand when we first moved here and we were volunteering at this animal sanctuary farm just outside of town. And this woman runs a great operation, but she's got like almost 300 animals there. And it's like a 15 person crew and every one of them are volunteers, but it's like, you know, if, if people don't show up almost every day to help clean out stalls and clean stables and coops and turn out animals, those animals don't get maintained as well. So it's like, yep. you know, yeah. And then, then, a, then an infection gets in and then, Oh yeah. Then, yeah. yeah or, and then, yeah. And then all of a sudden your entire flock of chickens has the same illness or the same mites, you know, yep. you get, you know, one of your cows gets a, a, a mold, eats something, bad it gets a disease and then you know you have to make sure that they're isolated and quarantined from the other animals for however long and then they might not make it you know it's just it's a full yeah and people back in the day the real homesteaders they had they did that because they didn't have nine to five jobs and they didn't have like other responsibilities their whole responsibility was living you know and so the the homesteader industry now is so far removed from what it actually used to be when it when it was a real thing and we're just not there now so i mean we have eight chickens here well seven now we just we just lost one the other night because they just they die you know yeah predators (laughs) come in like we don't know what happened but there was something that happened in our coop 
And I think it was because we'd, we'd spent a little while longer before we closed them up for the night. Um, we left the door open for a little bit after dark and then we closed them up. And then the next morning we opened them up and we saw that uh, we're missing one chicken and there's a big mess in the coop and there's feathers everywhere. And we just don't quite know what happened. And same thing with our rooster. I saw him at one o'clock one day by four o'clock that same day, he was gone and he's never come back. We don't know, we don't know <laughs> yeah, what happened to him. The, the most we've ever had is um, is four chickens, and then uh, not not long since we had three chickens and like a, like a rooster. He, he died of old age. We we rescued him. He was getting bullied by his offspring. He, he was from a larger sort of brood, you know, mm-hmm. and what, he had younger younger roosters. And the, the guy that kind of had this uh, like going to say menagerie of animals wasn't really like a farmer he just had lots of chickens and geese and stuff but basically the younger um roosters were starting to bully the old boy you know and he was literally in a dog pen you know on his own looking very sad for himself so the guy uh, said to me one day he says would you take him up to have you know with your three chickens and i said yeah of course i will because we lived in the middle of nowhere at the time and he was a, a, a great addition to the to the and he used to i think when he realized that he had these three hens to himself he was strutting around like he owned the world you know yeah. but he was he was old you know and one day we went to let him out and he was just keeled over old age in his in his little roost bless him you know but yeah. uh but you know it comes to everyone at some point yeah but it certainly does you said about animals i mean my my kind of homestead experience for want of a better word um was when i one of the first estates i worked on i was in charge of the walled garden so i was just growing the vegetables for everyone you know for the the lodge and and two other houses on the estate so not i mean it was a fairly big like uh, it was an old victorian garden so it was walled so like predator you know so like deer and stuff couldn't get in but that was a full-time job just weeding the ground uh, propagating seeds, planting stuff out, you know, hoeing, uh, pruning the fruit trees, you know, and, and, yeah. and they're, they're plants. <laughs> Do you mean? <laughs> they, they pretty much, you know, you put them in the ground and leave them. People think, oh, you just plant something and leave it. No, it's not, you know, if anyone who owns an allotment will tell you it's a full-time kind of thing, you know, like just yeah. like, hey, just trying to keep, keep. Um, I say weeds, but anything invasive that's trying to, compete with your plants you need to kind of make sure that doesn't get a hold and if, if you if you leave it a week it, it's one of those odd mathematical problems yeah you can spend an hour a day weeding and you say oh an hour a day over seven days is seven hours so if i leave it a week i can do seven hours on a saturday and leave it a week but that's yeah. not how that's not how growth works so if you no. leave it seven days you've suddenly given yourself two weeks worth of work. Yeah. I'm learning that now on, um, not just on my own property, but this, this, uh, this couple I work for up in the Hills, they have this beautiful spread and, and it's kind of, it's out in the woods, but they have this almost like a small park that they've built on their property with these ponds that they dug out like 40 years ago. And, and it's, it's in the middle of the dense wilderness. And so, I mean, the nature is constantly trying to creep up and these people yep. bless their heart. I mean, they're so wonderful. These guys, these guys, they're so kind. Um, but their, their whole day is, is spent trying to control the nature around them, whether it's the garden that they're, 
you know, growing and have been growing for 30 or 40 years. It's a bountiful, beautiful garden, but it's also just keeping all the other vegetation on the outskirts from moving in. And then there's the mistakes that they've made over the years with planting certain kinds of ground cover that have become just, you know, prolific and just wants to take over everything. So they've hired me out uh, to do about 20, 25 hours a week. And it's still not enough. I mean, I could spend eight hours a day there every single day, just, yep. just maintaining this property for them, but they, they can't afford to pay me that much, but you know, we have a really good relationship. And like, like you were mentioning as you know, you're keeping the grounds at this estate from the pruning of the trees to the weeding, to the gardening, to just understanding how the vegetation works and coexists together. All that knowledge is really valuable. You know, it's extremely valuable. So even, you know, in the, in the black pilled shit hits the fan kind of, you know, type of scenario, it's not just like, oh, I know how to garden, but it's like, you actually, you, you know, you probably know what to garden and at what elevations things thrive and at what varieties, phenotypes of these kind of plants are going to thrive under what conditions and what you pair together and what you have to keep away, what kind of um, other animals or critters like bees you should keep away or close and all that stuff is incredibly valuable, I think. So that's like... Oh. You know, my, my, my little white pill over this whole period of the last couple of years has been learning and re, redefining what real value is for my own life and what kind of value I can retain and then what I can give back um, in exchange, honestly, for cash. So it's pretty cool because I'm basically getting paid to learn like really intimate skill sets and and learning how to you know uh, take on different kind of abilities that I never ever thought I would be able to do it just wasn't it wasn't interesting to me when I was when I was blue pilled and and didn't care because I was just high all the time and making art I didn't care about gardening I didn't care about building structures I didn't care about water but now that things have changed in such a dramatic way um, the white pill for me has been just learning learning how to do things in a different way and learning what kind of value I can retain and the skills that I can use that are not only going to help me become more valuable to other people as far as what I can do for them, but all that stuff I can do to reinforce my own arc that I'm building here for my little family so that we can rise above and stay, you know, at least on top of the water instead of being overcome by it as they rise. No, that's, that's, that's a good attitude to have because like say you there's value in learning and i think and especially if it's a practical learning just what you said there one of the things i learned when i was gardening was a thing called companionship garden um, which is when you um, plant certain plants with other plants to prevent one plant from being overcome by something else for example uh, carrot fly doesn't like onions so if you plant your carrots next to your onions it naturally repels the carrot fly because, do you know what I mean? It's sort of, uh, it's like having marigolds in your greenhouse. They they, they, they keep aphids and green fly away. Um, there's all these little tips and tricks that I suddenly learned when I was battling, um, like a whole new thing. You know, when I was trying to feed, you know, a lodge and two houses with with vegetables that, like I say, that winter veg, summer veg, summer fruits, winter fruits. Um, I learned about clamping, you know, when you dig up your, your vegetables and then you just, you, you, you rebury them, like, but in straw as a way of preserving them, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was all, um, it was a fascinating 
uh, it was a good three years. Uh, I did, did that for three years, and this particular estate was only accessible by boat. So I learned. Um, I, I did my powerboat level two courses, so I could uh, sail across the lock in in three different three different boats. We had we had a big displacement boat, uh, we had a speed boat, and we had a landing craft to fetch our fuel and and stuff over like our, our oil for the for heating oil. So it was it was a a, a very good three years of learning to live kind of remote and out out of the way from everything yeah that was fascinating and and i I would go back to it but again i'm i'm i've got 10 years on you and 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 my and my body shows it's it's i've I've, I've put my body through some abuse in the past i must admit like i say with the the whole mountain rescue i did uh, right 13 years in the military running around doing stupid stuff you know so well, that kind of reminds me of the people, you know, that are employing me up in the hills. I mean, they're in their mid seventies. They can't keep up with the the property, but you know, they've they found me. And if you know, if that were you, yeah, you could probably maintain a little bit for a while. But you know, like you said, you very well might not be able to keep up uh, with with the amount of responsibility. But then, you know, there are people out there who can, and yeah. can easily find them or they will find you and you can form a relationship that's mutually beneficial and relying on trust and and uh, compassion and and value so that you wouldn't have to go it alone you know you and people i think sometimes think like oh i couldn't possibly do that or move out there so far because it would be so much work and yes well that's both true it's not exclusively just your own work it would be at first until you can start to branch out and find other people that you can, you know, cooperate with. Um, not to make a cooperate like a like a co-op, but um, I mean, if you had to, then then yeah, then you could. I like that's a whole other thing too. Like I don't necessarily think that the co-ops and the collectivism is always such a bad thing. I just think that uh, you first have to go it alone, and then try to figure out where you can find some other people who can assist in this, but also keep yourselves. Um, not identified together as one, you know, like you have a neighborhood, a neighborhood is composed of different people, different houses, different lives and lifestyles. Um, but they're all each individual little tiny governments within themselves, you know? Yeah. So I, I suppose you, you could argue that once you step over your threshold, you're in your own nation state, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, you know, what, what goes on within those walls is, is dictated by that hierarchy within inside. So, and then you just extend that to the, the, the neighbor next door and the, the, that neighbor next door and that neighbor next door until you might know, say you get to a point where you say, yeah, we, we can work together. Even yeah. though we have our own, our own autonomy. I'm happy. Uh, I mean, you, you obviously, are you familiar with James Corbett? You must. Um, oh yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, obviously now and again, when he does the, uh, voluntarism you know when he does the, the shows on that i mean that's pretty much what what we should be doing you know people should voluntarily be in, offered a service and either accepting it or declining it i mean i said uh i think when i was down at my mum and dad's last it was maybe a month ago and we were talking about something and i said well you know we live in you know it's a, a fascist dictatorship for want of a better word and, and my dad was a bit you know, 
upset by that. And he was like, no, 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 you know, this is a democracy. And I was like, no, Dad, I says, I says, tell me, can you opt out? You know, if you, if, can you opt out? If you don't want to pay taxes, can you just opt out of that? He goes, well, no, you can't. I says, well, there you go. Then it's not, yeah. you're not free. You know, that's, that's by very definition. If you, if you decided to opt out of paying your taxes, they would send someone around to forcibly either take the money either directly from your bank or goods and services to the value of like take your car or whatever um, and you know your assets uh, and make an example of you and, and, and maybe even thrown in jail I said so you're not free you you are you are you are voluntarily agreeing to the terms and conditions of your own enslavement yeah and don't say we're in a democracy when because if if you wanted to vote to just if we if, if you could have a genuine vote and the whole country said, let's vote whether we need government or not. And it, you can, well, and if it was a genuine vote and it, and it said, and everyone voted, no, let's get rid of government. How long do you think that would last? <laughs> do you think I the government know. would say, yeah, yeah, okay, well, we've been voted out, we'll all, you know, we'll go off and do our own thing. That, that wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't wash because the, the people that are in power currently are the kind of people that can't do simple things. You know, if you were to stick them out in the wilderness and say, well, you know, you need to survive by picking berries or doing a hard day's graft. They, they, they just couldn't do it. So they have to justify their existence by making themselves more important than they actually are. I think yeah, that's, that's the situation we've ended up in, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a travesty, especially um, because people are, seem to be so separated ideologically that they couldn't possibly imagine any kind of mutual benefit to being, you know, cooperative. Like there's some people that I work for occasionally, um, they're, they're old school progressive liberals, you know, they're just old progressive Democrat liberal people and they quietly despise their neighboring property because they're Republican and they're conservative and they, you know, shoot guns off their porch out into the wilderness. They're, they're Trump supporters. And they laugh yeah. that they they laugh that there are Trump supporters who are shooting guns or are preparing themselves because they think the communists are coming. And then I, you know, I don't bring it up because we're not there to talk about politics. We're talk we're, we're there to get some work done. But and you know, part of the question in my mind is I want to be like, so do you think that if this canyon was on fire, that these Trump loving gun shooting neighbors would just abandon you? <laughs> yeah to die yeah. engulfed in flames you don't think that they would uh, put aside your i mean obviously they have ideological differences you don't think that for a minute that they would put aside their ideological dif- their 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 ideology to come and assist you in in evacuating the area i mean it's already happened before you know there were fires in that canyon a few years ago and just like the same thing that happened in our little town with the ice storm. Like there's all kinds of people here. There's conservatives and there's liberals and progressives and they're all over the place. The place is peppered with different types of belief systems. But when an actual natural thing happened, like an ice storm where there was power lines, power lines were down and trees crushing people's houses. And then there's fire creeping up the Canyon and, and just moving, you know, at 20 miles an hour, eating everything in its path, people put their shit aside and they help each other out, you know, so I, I, I laugh sometimes when these guys are like, oh, yeah, they just those people, they're so fucking crazy. And they're like, yeah, they may be crazy and they may be different. But, you know, when the shit hits the fan and the rubber hits the road, they're going to be putting your livestock onto their trailers next to their motorcycles as you guys both evacuate and escape. Yeah. 
and I, you know, because your, your that's a beautiful thing. Because your place was um, narrowly missed, wasn't it? Didn't you have a tree fall over that was during that storm? Oh yeah, yeah. We had a we had one huge oak that split down the middle and crushed our shed. Most of it, I was able to rebuild it, and then we had a humongous limb fall off of another massive oak. Like, these oak trees are like almost a hundred years old, so they're huge. They're like you know sixty inch diameters trunks yeah we had a a huge limb fall right on our our porch railing because it's a raised porch up off the ground about 10 feet or so and it kind of it jostled it but i had to repair that too but i mean our entire property was literally covered in debris for months the whole town is still covered in debris i mean it's just out there that's half of what i'm doing up in the hills is just clearing off windfall and the storm fall from two years ago because it's a fire hazard yep. and once it dries out i mean it's just a tinderbox it could go up anytime and usually i mean that place there's generally only one egress and one entrance so there's one dirt gravel road up and there's one dirt gravel road down and uh if you get an evacuation you know you're, yeah. you're basically going to be bumper to bumper with people who are either not prepared or they're refusing to leave but they've got so many vehicles and trailers with livestock in it that you're not going to be getting anywhere. And then you might get trapped. You say about um, clearing, like, you know, go back to the, the 18th century or whatever, and you're clearing a, a fallen tree. I mean, these days people think it's easy because you've got a chainsaw, but yeah. if you're not familiar with compression and, and uh, tension, um, that, very easy chainsaw jobs can suddenly end very quickly, can't it? You know, oh, yeah. If, yeah, if someone and, and people don't get that. Now you imagine that and doing that by hand with either a saw and an ax. It's the yeah, same, or, same yeah, principle. Or, or a horse, you know, yeah. a horse or an ox. I mean, because yeah, you might have a best chainsaw, 20 inch blade or whatever, but if you don't have any gas, <laughs> if you don't have any <laughs> yeah. gas, I, I mean, it's going to take some time to ferment your own gas, to ferment your own alcohol. If it, if it even runs off of that. And then if you don't have that, then you better have a friend who has a horse or two that you could, you know, tie a, a lead to and pull that tree away. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, when you were talking about your, your missus and uh, her love of horses, I mean, I, I love horses. I've, I've grown up around horses when I was younger and they were like, not, not domestic, you know, they were pets for one of a better word, like riding horses. Mm-hmm. But the horses that I truly admire are your heavy horses you know your Clydesdale your uh, Shire horses your Persians you know those big those those ones that would drag a you know a redwood you know along you know to get it out of the woods and when you see those like proper beasts of of power and and you've got to admire nature in in its raw strength there I think absolutely yeah it's all it's all pretty interesting um Rob I'm sorry I gotta go though man no, no, and you you tied you tied up you tied up brilliantly with your black and your white pill near the end there, so I don't need to ask you about that. Oh, <laughs> so. good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I guess like in a real quick summary, the black pill is that it's never going to stop; it's just going to keep going, and um, we don't really have any say because there's no consent. It's just a, it's just, uh, it just seems to be the course of action. But through that, you know, there is there is a there is a beautiful opportunity to to build your skill set and to redefine what value is to redefine what time is and, yeah. uh, and build those arcs and those rafts to keep yourself and your loved ones afloat so that you might be able to tie those rafts together. And suddenly you have a big barge 
of opportunity and, and skill and value yeah. human beings of real people and, I, and I'll, I'll end it by saying i think just being aware that there's a problem is, is preparation enough sometimes absolutely yeah 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 just 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 being aware as opposed to naive and and with that dean i hope you have a fantastic evening or the rest of it and a, and a pleasant sunday and uh, hopefully i'll catch up with you later I would like to, yeah, I like that very much, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I'd like to get more. Um, this has been a really cool conversation, pretty easy flowing, and I like it. Um, so I, I think we still have a lot more to discuss. Oh, we, we could do volumes, volumes on it. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's do it again. How, how, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad, always glad to talk to you. I mean, I know you don't put your podcast out on, on the regular, but when it pops up on my um, uh, podcast static, I'm always like, oh, another one by Dean. Great. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So, so I get that like little jump when I'm like, yes, you know, look, yeah. what's what's he going to say now? Because I, I, I would say 99.9% of what you say, I'm like 100% on board with. So. That's so. really great, man. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. I think that's also no. a weird little clever, subtle thing that makes the, makes the action more valuable too when it's not predictable. And we yes. don't really know when it doesn't really follow an agenda. It doesn't really follow a, a particular mode of thinking or production value you never really know so i think that makes it even more valuable as well yeah i'm glad you I'm, think I'm so. no no i'm very much so i'm, I'm going to send you some pictures in a minute that, uh show you some of my handiwork okay cool be I good like um look after your family i'm sure you will do will and do. uh until next time bon voyage yeah man awesome thank you so much rob i really appreciate it all right dean see you later bye Take now care. bye-bye